forgot my sermon. Hey. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Lord. So we're going to uh, continue our teaching series today on on uh, Micah six eight. It's all there. Basically, what we mean by that, if you're just visiting it with us for the first time today in the series, that Micah six eight is kind of the Old Testament version of the New Testament verse where where Jesus. Uh, said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, uh, is the sum of all the, all the law and the prophets. And so uh, we're particularly wanting to look at the area of justice, mercy, walking humbly with God, saying, recognizing that they all uh, fit together. All right, Mark, are we recording? Are we on? Okay, cool. Uh, first of all, I want to dedicate this message to my father. Now the reason I'm doing that is because mom and dad have just found out that we're online as a church and that these messages are now available and they've been uh, wanting to, to dial in for a long time. And uh, so I want to dedicate this message to my dad. And the reason is, is that one of the greatest legacies, he's now almost, I won't say, I won't say almost, he's 79, all right? Uh, but one of the greatest legacies he has passed to me is a love for First Nations people. He did this not by what he said, but by what he did. He loved them, he served them, he respected them, he was in their homes, he laughed and cried with them. He loved their humor, their anecdotes, their stories. And as a, as a pastor in Alberta, planting churches in different parts of Alberta. They were a very integral part of my growing up years. And the reason I want to share that with you today is, is that there is a, uh, that this uh, has had a deep and profound impact on my story. It's a significant part of my journey as a pastor, a Canadian pastor, born and raised here. And so with that in mind, I also want to welcome my friend Steve Chikesta, who's here today, whose friendship I have enjoyed for the last 16 years since we've been going to Lower Post. We met the first year that uh, we went to Lower Post. Unforgettable memories that have since passed through since that time. Highs and lows, victories and seeming defeats. And... Uh, Steve has just been such an incredible blessing, such an incredible friend to me. And, and I wanted him to share just a little bit. I've, I'm going to kind of do it in an inter interview format. I thought, how many know if I'm going to have somebody share and I'm preaching, it's good to get them on first. It's a good idea, you know. Um, might not have any room at the end. So come on up, Steve. I want, to, I want everybody to welcome you. And... Um, Welcome, bro. Thank you, brother. I know Steve has been here before, and a lot of you have met him. You can, you can hold that. Um, but I, 
I wanted, we've, we've been wearing this bracelet, Steve, today to, to remember this terrible legacy that we've had in Canada, which obviously affected you and your siblings. Tell me, what are your immediate thoughts to that? Well, first of all, I just definitely want to thank Gordy, Kathleen, and uh, this, the, these awesome group, group of people here for uh, really believing in First Nation justice. Uh, on behalf of myself and my family and the cask of people, I just want to say thank you for your efforts, your prayers, and the fact that you do want to see justice for First Nation in Canada. Um, so thank you, thank you, and bless you. Thank you. And I just uh, thank God for, um, for Gordy coming into my life. Uh, I grew up in the north, and uh, I did spend uh, 12 years in residential schools, and there's uh, 13 in my family, and like most First Nations, we have Was that your immediate large family? Families. That's your, right. Your immediate yeah. family, 13 went through residential school. 13 went through residential school. Actually, uh, we lost uh, three in, uh, of our family members fairly young, but the rest all went through residential school, so it had a profound effect on uh, our families, our parents, uh, having their, their children taken away from them every year. Do you, uh, do you mind my asking, sorry for interrupting, yeah, but how did you find out you were going to go? When, when did that... <laughs> Come. Well, I know that my sisters and brothers, uh, they were gone every, every year. They'd be back uh, intermittently in my life. Uh, when I was uh, uh, six years old, uh, one day I was out playing in the yard, and at the end of the, dri the driveway, there was a big yellow bus pulled up, and it was full of, it was full of kids, and they were all waving me on, come, you gotta go, we have to go to school. So I ran inside to uh, the house and I asked my mother, I, said, I told her, I said, there's a bus out there. And she says, you have to go. So I just jumped on the bus, living in Cassia, and uh, the bus took us to Lower Post, uh, which was uh, probably 250 miles away. And uh, I didn't see my mother again until Christmas. I mean, I didn't know I was going to a residential school and it was like uh, full of children. And I remember the first day I went to the residential school, and we were herded in like uh, sheep, and uh, they lined us all up and uh, gave us haircuts and marched us through uh, to our uh, sleeping accommodations. And uh, the first night there was very, very hard. I can still remember today where you can hear kids crying in the dorm, and the supervisor would come in and say, don't cry, and uh, because everybody else will start crying. So they suppressed everybody's feelings. You, can't, you weren't allowed to cry, you weren't allowed to feel, and you weren't allowed to speak. So that's the message we got from day one, and they just drilled that in our heads day in and day out. And, it, and tell, us, tell us a bit about what they said about your speaking in your language. That was obviously part of it, wasn't it? Not speaking your language and your... Yeah, well, my uh, older siblings, when they went in, they, were, they could speak fluently, and they were, uh, they were beaten by the uh, nuns and priests who were speaking their language, and they said it was the devil's language, and they, were, and, uh, they washed their mouth out with soap, and um, they did a lot of uh, really abusive things to them to try to stop them from speaking the only language that they knew. So, Steve, how can you, uh, well, 
I mean, I don't know how can it get any worse, but what in your mind as you, as you look back and you take a deep breath and you reflect on that, what was t t in your mind the worst thing about it? What, what was the worst thing that happened to you there? Well, be, taking from our families, our uh, mother and our father, and uh, the, you know, our mother was a very loving person. I mean, uh, no one can replace a mother's love. And uh, spending uh, months away from them and not being able to see them, even when they came into the community, uh, we, we would know that they were in lower post, but they could not come in and we could not go out to see them. And uh, it was, we only saw them during Christmas and during summer. And the hardest thing for our family is our mother died when we were really young. Yeah. So we came out and she, she was no longer there, which was really hard on the whole family. Yeah. How has it impacted, you know, now that you're out and you've, you've had a family of your own, you have a family of your own, and you've seen others come out and seen their families, describe what kind of impact that had on family life after residential school? Well, when we came out of the residential school, I mean, they didn't teach us anything about life skills. You know, when we went to residential school, they uh, gave us everything, you know, like the clothes, the food, and we didn't, they didn't teach us how to really, uh, to, to live in the outside world. We were in an institution. Um, and one of the biggest things that they took from us is uh, parenting skills. You know, like uh, when we got there at six years old, they expected us to know every rule that they had, like hundreds of rules. And every time you broke a rule, you were punished. And, uh, and so we had to learn the rules, and then it was uh, very severe discipline. So like when I became a parent, you know, I mean, that was the way I saw how to teach my children, you know. Mm -hmm. you, gotta, you should know this already. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I didn't have that ability to, to really teach. And I didn't spend time in my younger years learning from my dad. I mean, I didn't really know my dad until after residential school, where I spent one year with him on traveling. Yeah, just kind of relearning, well, well learning your yeah. ways, really. What I can't understand, it just baffles me, uh, maybe you can help me understand, is why in the world are you a follower of Jesus? Why in the world, after all of that, that was done in, in the name of God, in the name of Christianity, in the name of Christ, mm -hmm. um, that you, uh, I see in you, uh, you know, with your sister, you know, in, in Helen in the hospital and hovering between life and death, really. But I see such faith in you, ardent faith in you and, and your siblings. How in the world can you be a Christian after all of that that we did to you? Well, you know, Gordy, I, I know God is real. And uh, I've experienced his touch, his protection, his grace so many times. And I know he's faithful. And, uh, and I know that, uh, you know, man's going to fail. And I know God, he's, he never leaves us nor forsakes us. So um, I believe in miracles. I believe that God is able to do the impossible. Um, 
But you are right, there's a lot of people out there that um, they've been wounded by the Bible. Um, people actually delivering the message of Jesus, saying that Jesus loves you, but they were the person holding the Bible would abuse them in so many different ways. Yeah. And so right now there's many people out there that are First Nations that do not want to anything to do with the Bible or uh, with God. Um, but for me, I've learned fairly young uh, because uh, God's grace, I met a Christian family and they taught me about Jesus and uh, the real love of Christ. Oh. I've seen the, the love of Christ in them and it was real, genuine. And they took us in and they just loved us like we were one of their children. Huh. So from that, I just learned that Jesus is real and that uh, he's there for us. And um, that's why my faith is what it is today. So there's, there's hope that what, I, what I'm hearing from you is that, is that God put within you a discerner between the, the real and the counterfeit. And, and you were able to recognize the counterfeit and you were able to recognize the real when, yeah. when it came. That's right, yeah. So there's hope for us as a church to, as we continue to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God, that First Nations people can still see the real Jesus. Absolutely, and there's more people that are, uh, that are starting to change you know, like uh, my cousin Dave, you know, his heart is really softened towards the Lord. Whereas before, he just didn't want to look at a church. Yeah. Didn't want to see a Bible. Yeah. And uh, now he's, um, he knows that, you know, the Creator is real and his name is Jesus. So, yeah. so he's coming too. Yeah. You know, he's getting closer and closer. So, yeah, definitely there's, uh, you know, people that are, I mean, from uh, people are just living and, and blessing and uh, just walking, you know, and, and, and loving them, uh, he knows there's a difference. That's awesome. One more question. Uh, tell us a little bit of what your work is now. Um, you've, you've obviously been involved in different aspects of justice and advocacy for First Nations for years since you were very young. Man, I think you had pimples, the first picture I saw on you. <laughs> Do natives have pimples? I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I don't know what it was. But uh, what, t tell us about your work now. Your, your vocationally, I've just seen, no matter what you've done, whether you've worked for the pipeline or whether you've worked for First Nations directly or as a liaison, there's always been something in your heart about that advocacy. Tell us what you're doing now and, and what... what, what fuels your fire? What, what gives you, what's your passion in that? Well, uh, I've been blessed to work for my people, the Casket and the Council, and uh, working with them, representing them, uh, and, uh, and, and speaking for, for their rights, interests, and uh, benefits uh, when it comes to mining, oil and gas, logging, and dealing with uh, government. Uh, and it doesn't seem like work, it just seems so it's something I really like to do and enjoy doing, and I really believe in it. Uh, so I've been blessed in that regard from uh, starting back in 1983. I remember the first time I got my call from my, my cousin, Dave, uh, George Miller. He asked me to come work for Casca Dena Council. 
and I had asked him, what is Cascadia Council? <laughs> Who is Cascadia Council? Because I didn't, didn't, I had no background in land claims or Aboriginal rights and titles. But throughout the years, I've learned a lot and uh, really appreciate working with my people. And now I work uh, on the initiative called Reconciliation, where we're looking at negotiating um, agreements with uh, government, industry, uh, trying to reconcile some of the uh, the, the wrongs regarding the land and uh, management decisions and planning in our territory. So it's uh, still a work in progress, but uh, we're, we're moving ahead on that. Fantastic. Well, I mean, what you're doing is, is, a, is a calling. It's a ministry, it's a vocation. It's no less, uh, you know, a, a ministry than what I'm doing as a pastor or any of us are doing. And we just bless what you're doing. We recognize that, that your success in these endeavors is critical to our well-being. It's not just about your people. It is about your people, but it, we know that as a country, we cannot be blessed and thrive the way God has wanted us to without you uh, doing well in this area. So we are committed to ongoing prayer and advocacy and support in any way that we can uh, and uh, and we will continue to pray uh, for lower post thank you brother appreciate that and thank each and every one of you god bless you and thank you again thanks <laughs> thank you love you steve oh. I tell you, uh, just such a, such a gift, such a blessing. And uh, Cascade Territory is one of the largest traditional territories in the, well, I think it's the largest in the province. Well, our territory covers, uh, it goes to southern BC and into north Yeah. So it's a massive, yeah. So lots of mining and forestry and trapping and hunting and fishing and all those things having to work together and, and uh, we just need the kingdom of God. And I think that he's a Daniel, very strategically placed uh, between government and his people. Uh, so would you remember to pray for Steve? And as you wear this, think of Steve. Do you remember your number? No. Okay. Okay, yeah, Frances has, had, has her number on the back table. She wrote an article. Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad you don't. <laughs> uh, but be praying for him this week and, and in, the, in the time days to come. I think many of us, if we're Canadian and grew up here, we have our own story. I know for me, I grew up uh, in the north, very close, not far from the Lubicon uh, people about, um, my hometown was about three hours south of the Lubicon Lake, Buffalo, Little Buffalo area. And uh, I, I remember um, growing up, I didn't know this story of residential school until I was 35 years old as a Canadian. I didn't know the story. And there was one all the time I was growing up within half an hour of where I lived. 
And so these native guys would show up at my school in high school and we'd become friends and then we'd play basketball together and then some of them would come to church and I'd see them come to Christ and they'd get all on fire and then one weekend they'd disappear and I'd have to pull them out of a gutter somewhere. They were on a drunk and they'd repent and get right with God and we'd have another swing at it and then after a couple of weeks the same thing would happen. And I'm going, what's wrong with this picture? I, I didn't understand. I thought, what's wrong with these guys? How come they can't get it together? You know? Just read your Bible. Just pray. What's the matter with you guys? You know? Let's cast out some demons here. You know, let's get this thing going. And I, I'd never understood it. And then when I was 30 years old, after ministering for 10 years in Calgary, as many of you know, I suffered a severe nervous breakdown, complete physical, mental, emotional collapse, and we were recovering in, in, in England for two years. And it was in 1990, my second year of, with the house church movement in England, a movie came through the theaters. Does anybody remember what it was? Dances with Wolves. And I went and watched it once, and I wept, and then I went, and I watched it again, and I just couldn't stop weeping for months. And I realized that there was something going on here that it wasn't my sadness anymore. It was, I was feeling the sadness of God. And when you, you know what it's like to realize that God is actually sad about your land, about your country? I realized that God was very, very sad because Canada, one of the most beautiful nations on earth, rated by many as the most desirable place on earth to live, is not that for First Nations people. And something was wrong with the picture. And so I want to just say that I believe that First Nations justice is not only a justice issue that has to be addressed, it is foundational to every other issue in Canada. It's like South Africa. You could go to South Africa and say, you know, you need to deal with your housing problem or you need to deal with your, your you know, the, the, the health issue in some of your urban areas. But how many know if you don't deal with apartheid, all the other stuff is just whitewash? And it's the same in Canada. In fact, did you know that the apartheid system drew its inspiration for developing apartheid from the Canadian reserve system, native reserve system. They came over here and studied Canada and used that. That's a fact. So, so God says, um, he's shown you, O people, what is good, what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We define justice as going beyond just us in our first week together to loving our neighbor. And this week, specifically our, our First Nations neighbors that live amongst us, live here on the reserves in the cities. They're our neighbors. What does justice look like for them? And to use, I want to use an allegory of the Good, as, the good Samaritan as an allegory. Uh, when I say an allegory, I'm using it as a picture to help us understand the reality. I'm not using it as a, a tool so much as Bible interpretation, although I think there's, there is overlap somewhat in this story. 
How many have ever read a story with a surprise ending? Do you remember The Partner, Gordy? Do you remember The Partner by John Grisham? The Partner. It's a John Grisham novel. Gordy and I had the same experience. We read the book. It's this incredible, engrossing story. And at the end of it, you go, No! And you want to throw the book through the window. Right? Isn't that what happened? And, and there's kind of that thing that happens um, in, this, in, this, I wanna, in this story of the Good Samaritan. So, gee, uh, Jesus confronts this lawyer who comes up to him and he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? Now, Jesus, you notice he often answered questions with a question. And the man answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. But he wanting to justify himself, now notice here, not wanting to do justly, but wanting to justify himself, asked, and who is my neighbor? Now, it's important to understand the background of this conversation. We're not on the allegory part yet. This, this is just exegesis. There was a conversation going on in Jewish life around this issue, about who is my neighbor. Uh, there was a lot of theological arguments. Uh, and for Jews, the general assumption was that your neighbor was a fellow Hebrew. In other words, if you're going to do everything that, that God is, you know, to make God happy and, and to love your neighbor is a key part of that, then we better start defining who our neighbor is. And so they, they began to work really hard at that and basically came to the conclusion that their neighbors were their fellow Jews. Uh, a few were willing to allow for Jewish uh, Gentile converts to the Jewish faith, uh, and maybe some Hebrew nations that were in friendly alliance with the Jewish people, but certainly not the hated Samaritans. They were definitely not our neighbors. All right. So this is the kind of conversation that's going on when the guy asks the question, well, who's my neighbor then? So in light of this, now I, did, I don't have my phone on. Is there anything I'm doing wrong, Mark? Okay. All right. Is it? Okay. All right, here goes the cross. Let's, can we leave it somewhere where you all see it? There we go. There we go. And uh, so, who is my neighbor? The guy asked. So the problem is is that this story ends with an incredible surprise that we've lost because we know the ending now and we've heard it so many times. And it's lost its edginess. It's lost its jarringness that it had when Jesus told the story. So we need to, we need to keep that in mind and maybe I can help you a little bit. Jesus tells the story. Now we're moving into the allegory. In, the, in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers and they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, this was a common occurrence. This wasn't something that was out of the ordinary. This, this happened. He, was a, he seemed to be a relatively normal person, a good living person, may have been a husband or a father, may have just kissed his kids goodbye to go on a, a business trip. We certainly was somebody's son. And uh, there was family and, 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 and a degree of normalcy. Now, with regards to First Nations, prior to the European settlers, the First Nations people lived in this land. 
That God, and God gave them, I believe, three primary gifts that you've heard over and over again, Steve, in lower post. I believe that God gave First Nations the gift of stewardship of creation. And that gift of stewardship of creation is, 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 the, is, the, is the ability to relate to the land and, and creation and to be stewards of it, to use it for humanity's good, but, but not in a wasteful way. They, and I've had First Nations tell me stories of how that every part of the moose or the buffalo was used. They didn't waste one thing. Just a few hairs laying around. That was about it, right? And, uh, and, and that gift of stewardship was connected to the, to the Creator. It wasn't just creation, but the Creator. It was all an integral part of that. Uh, I was wearing this the other day, and a First Nations lady was my cashier at Safeway. And she said, hey, your tea looks like a cross. <laughs> and I said to her, well, actually, it is a cross. I said, you know, it's about St. Francis. Do you know St. Francis? No, I never heard of him. Well, St. Francis, I said, he used to talk to the birds and the animals. I said, he was just like a First Nations guy. And she laughed her head off. She thought that was so funny. But they had this incredible ability to relate to creation and, and, and the creator all at the same time. It wasn't pantheism. Some of it was, but a lot of it was not. It was, it was just a, an, an ability to see the creator in the hand of his creation. Um, the second thing was they had a gift of hospitality and generosity. The early, how many know the early settlers, the French, the English, would not have survived their first winters without First Nations people? Samuel de Champlain, I was just at, near St. Croix Island, Samuel de Champlain was with these French settlers. The first winter, they would have died. Do you know why they went to St. Croix Island, Steve? To escape the savages. They wanted to be safe, and they almost died there. So the savages came and helped them get through the winter. Yeah, maybe, Barbie. <laughs> and then there was the gift of relationship, community, and family. Uh, they, they had this ability to actually put people as more important than things. And that was symbolized through the potlatch and some of these ceremonies. Now, Samuel de Champlain, he was a, he was, uh, they think maybe he was a Huguenot, a, a French Protestant who reconverted to Catholicism. And if that's the case, he was certainly very moderate in his Catholicism. And he had a real heart for for diversity and for religious tolerance because of the terrible religious wars in France. And so his dream for Canada was that we be a country of diversity where we tolerate differences. And when he came to the, to the First Nations people, the First Nations people made a treaty with the French settlers, and this carried over to the English later. They called it the two-row wampum. How many have ever heard of it? It's the two-row wampum where... The, and see, we, when we make a treaty or a covenant, we bring out papers and pencils and, you know, type and sign things. First Nations see pictorially, and they had this belt that was made of beads. It was full of white beads, and, it, it, and the belt had a white background, and there was two purple rows of beads that ran parallel to each other over the belt, if you can envision it. And one purple row of beads represented First Nations people, and the other row of beads represented the, uh, the, the European arrival, the people that were arriving from Europe, the European cultures. And the, the white background represented purity. The purple beads represented each culture with its lives, its laws, and its customs. 
And the three white beads that separated each row represented friendship, respect, and peace. And this is how the First Nations people understood that their place in Canada would be. They were opening their doors with hospitality to the land and saying, we're, we're, we're not closed to you coming, but we, let's walk together in friendship, respect, and peace. And to this day, this is a fundamental understanding that First Nations people have. And it's actually recognized in the Constitution, isn't it? Uh, remember Dalgamook Dal or whatever in, in the 90s, a court, a courts recognized Aboriginal title in Canada. So that's important to know. Two people walking together with equal partnership and dignity. But then um, uh, he, he fell into the hands of robbers. I believe that this, this, what happened here describes what's happened to First Nations people. That first of all, they fell into the hands of thieves. It, and it's like this. The thieves entered their house on the pretense of being friends. Once in the house, the thieves took over and told the natives they could stay they could stay in the house, and to use graphic language, they, say they assigned them to the outhouse in the backyard. Traditionally, this happened through false treaties, basically where, where governments came to native communities and they said, we want to make a treaty with you. And as, as with Big Bear, this great chief on the prairies, they actually lied to him about what the treaty said because he couldn't read English. And he signed to something he didn't know he was signing to. That was one way that it happened. Other times, they were bullied and harassed into signing things they really didn't want to sign. But for the vast majority, hundreds still, I think, in, in Canada, there are still hundreds of unresolved treaties. There are 42, I believe, in B.C. Casca are one of them. There's never been a land claim settlement, never been a treaty, never been an agreement. And so because of that, mining and forestry and... Uh, environmental issues just clog up things. Um, now, it would, have been a bad, it would have been bad enough that that was way back then. That's bad enough, isn't it? Yeah. But the problem is, when I arrived back in Canada, I found a book by Jeffrey York, who writes for the Globe and Mail, a book called The Dispossessed. And to my shock, what happened way back then continues to happen on an ongoing basis. And we heard about the Lubicon, Wade. Uh, shared on the Lubicon last week, continues to happen. Continual systemic injustice continues to occur. Moose Lake, Manitoba. In the, uh, in the 1990s, it was a hellhole. We have Fort Ware and other places like that in our own province where it's so violent, people would put furniture in front of their doors at night so people wouldn't break in and assault them. The, the addiction rate was 80 to 90 percent. Welfare rates were 90 percent. Now, go back 30 years to the 19, early 1960s, and those stats are reversed. 90 percent of the people were employed. 90 percent of the people were not addicted, were clean, free of drugs and alcohol, and trapping and hunting and fishing. But somewhere in the mid-1960s, the federal government built a dam. They flooded out their lands, pushed them onto a little muskeg of a reserve, and made them welfare dependent. Totally disrupted their way of life. The thing is that story has happened over and over again. I know it's happened in Fort Ware. Any other towns you're aware of in the area? I know there's, a, there's at least, uh, George told me there's two other communities in BC that have been affected in a similar way. But I know Fort Ware's. What's the native name for Fort Ware? Karacha. Karacha. And for Lower Post? Delu. Huh? Delu. Delu. So, um, 
The, the Lubicon, um, this is our, our last week, and thank you, Wade, by the way, for that. This, that was a very, you know, what was so powerful about this is this is like a, 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 a test, it's like a prototype in a negative way of what's happening all across our country. There are hundreds of scenarios of what, what we heard about the Lubicon. And I was, a little, I was wondering how up to date your stuff was. So I wrote my brother-in-law, who's the outgoing liberal leader of the province of Alberta, David Swan. And I asked him, hey, what's, what's up with the, with the Lubicon? And he's, he's just resigned as the liberal leader and he's, going, he's still going to be an MLA. And he said, I visited the he wrote me this week in an email and said, I visited the Lubicon in 2007 and saw very poor conditions and learned of a breakdown in communications partly due to provincial approvals of oil and gas activity on Lubicon land and partly due to the lack of land settlements. I have not seen much news since, but I do not believe either federal or provincial governments are negotiating in good faith in the absence of any treaty nor to accommodate the cultural and livelihood requirements generally expected by tradition. Love, David. So it's, it, it, it goes on. And, and I believe that, that our voice needs to be heard and, and advocacy is important. This, this cannot remain in, in this land. Uh, so the second thing, it says they stripped him of his clothes. So first of all, the First Nations people were robbed. The second thing is they were stripped of their clothes and beaten. I believe this is a picture of what we heard Steve just describe with residential school. It was a cultural genocide. It was an attempt of the government, the colonial government, once and for all to deal with the Indian problem. And the roots of it were racial superiority and judgment, and of course, as Wade mentioned last year, the money. There, you, know, you don't have these economic issues to, to resolve. If, if we just deal with the Indian problem and assimilate them into the culture. And so First Nations people were removed from their families, which, as I, as I said, was at the heart of their culture, uh, the heart of, of who they were, this whole understanding of family, forbidden to sing their language or sing their songs, speak their language, tell their beautiful stories. Their identity was stolen through residential schools. When I arrived back in, in Canada from being in England in 1991, Lower Post was on the news. We were hearing it on the news. Some of these priests went and, and religious leaders went to jail for the sexual abuse of children in these schools. It was, and it was very, very high percentage in the schools. Francis also attended that school. So, then it says they, that that after they, that he was beaten, he went away. You know what? I think I'll just... Okay. Let, can you turn this one off? Uh, then it says that, that they, they went away and they, they left him for dead. And the last thing, the last legacy of residential uh, school and, and injustice has been that the... Has been, is this picture... Uh, what's wrong with this picture, folks? First Nation students today receive $3,000 to $5,000 less funding per student than all other schools in Canada. We're talking about reserve schools. $3,000 per student to $5,000 less per student per year. Only 41% of First Nations graduate from school, high school, 
compared with 77% in the rest of the country. First Nations children are six to eight times more likely to be faced, placed in foster care. Do you know why? Because of insufficient funding in foster care on the reserves. Usually, Ministry of Children's and Family, intervention is the last resort. But because of lack of funding on the reserves, it often becomes the first resort. Housing. 65% of First Nations housing is below standard with electrical, plumbing, heating, structural problems, mold problems. That's why we just bless and pray for Art's vision to take the, take the bug wood and redeem that. See First Nations housing redeemed. One quarter of all First Nations communities have a boil water advisory or, or don't consume advisory. Often the water is brown color, smelly, discoloring of pipes. Sound familiar? Lower post is that way. Uh, some have no water or well pipe. 23% have no water in their houses through pipe or well across our land. Terrifying teen suicide uh, statistics. Uh, the, the national average of teen suicide is uh, six times, six times the national teen average. The rate by which suicides of Aboriginal teen girls exceeds Canadian average eight times. The ranking of the Canadian Aboriginal youth suicide rate for the industrialized world, first. It's the highest suicide rate in the world. The rate by which tuberculosis in Aboriginal communities exceeds the Canadian rate, 25 times higher. Rate by which diabetes in Aboriginal communities exceeds Canadian rate 17 times higher. Rate by which infant mortality in Aboriginal communities exceeds Canadian rate three times higher. Percentage of Aboriginal peoples as a proportion of the Canadian population, 3%, although it's the fastest growing people group. Percentage of Aboriginal peoples in the prisons, 14%, way out of proportion. In Saskatchewan, it's 72%. It's like the poet in the downtown east side. He's a native guy, First Nations guy. He's sitting on the street corner. He says, I was sitting on the street corner on the ground, leaning against the building, and a white, white police officer came up to me and said, move on, move on, buddy. And I said, well, this is my land too. So he called another white police officer, and they picked me up, put me in a paddy wagon, driven by a white police officer, took me to the jail, put me in front of a white judge and a white jury and a white lawyer. And then they took me to a jail with a white guard and it was full of Indians. It's out of proportion. The mortality rate. 80% of First Nations people die prematurely compared to only 20% with the rest of the population, which tells me that the grieving, the, the, the guy Arthur H. wrote the book, The Grieving Indian, because of the grief. Remember Aaron, the young guy I told you about I met at Dees Lake? 14 years old, he pulls out his guitar, starts playing me little tunes from Metallica and Nirvana, and he plays a couple of bars, and then he says, oh, I played this at my cousin's funeral. Oh, I played this at my auntie's funeral. Oh, I played this one at my cousin's funeral, my brother's funeral, my mom's funeral. Like, this guy at 14 years of age had seen more death than I can even imagine. Mortality rate, so high. What's wrong with this picture? Well, it says that a priest was, happened to be going down the, the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. 
So too a Levite, when he came to the other place and saw him, passed by on the other side. By the way, the priest and Levite, it's the pastor and the church volunteers. That, if you want to parallel it to today, it was a pastor who saw him laying there and he said, you know, I, I'd love to stop, but I'm on a, on, in a rush to get to a meeting, a seminar on how to minister to broken people. And the volunteer was saying, I have to go there too and set up chairs. Now, I'm not dissing that. Obviously, you've got to do that. You, but I, I kid you not, is God in this? I'm walking out. Yesterday, we were, Kathleen and I were doing a little bit of odds and ends here, getting ready for today. And I get this craving for craft dinner. I never have craft dinner anymore. But also, I have this craving for craft dinner. So we parked over here at the bank. I said, stay here. And I was going to run across the Super Value, grab some craft dinner, and cook it up. So I'm just about across the road over here. And all of a sudden, First Nations guy, at least as tall as you, Steve, probably t- he's a big guy, uh, stumbles. Uh, at the corner and falls flat on his face on the on the concrete on the on the road right right on the crosswalk between uh, on first here so I was the first to him blood was coming out everywhere blood was coming out of his forehead coming out of his nose and he just laid there he, he seemed unconscious so I, 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 I kind of gently kept shaking him, and I said, are you okay? And somebody honked. And I'm sorry, but I really gave the dirty look. Sorry. So then, they said, well, you know. So then I, 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 it took a little while. A couple other people, beautiful young people, came along and started helping me get this big guy up. And then I realized he was pretty out of it, pretty inebriated, Right? And big guy, and so we're trying to get him, you know, to the to the edge of the road, and sat him down, and and then then he he just went flat on his back. So we called nine one one, of course, and we're waiting with him, and he wants to go. He gets up, and he's he just about steps right into traffic again, you know. Then he says, "You guys are effing awesome, man." <laughs> he pulls out a wallet full of full of big bills, man. A lot of money. Pulls up. He started offering me these bills. He says, you guys are effing awesome, man. You guys are effing nice people. Ah. And uh, I just remember all I had to do was just stay there. Just be with him. Make sure he didn't do something to himself. And finally, at the last minute, he said, listen, I'll, I'll be okay. Let me, let me, you know. And, and just as he was heading off, the ambulance came and they took care of him. But I remember as he was laying there, just this, I, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but you'll understand. He's laying there, and I said to myself, Kathleen's waiting for me in the van. That thought came through my head. So, you know, I quickly sent her a text, let her know what's going on. But what do you do if you don't have a cell phone? See, there's always an excuse not to show mercy. Always a reason. Always excuses. How many have ever offended somebody to show mercy? You let somebody else down to show mercy. It's hard sometimes. You got to make choices. And I don't know why these guys didn't stop, but I think they had good excuses. I think they had good reasons. 
And I think you always have to be listening to the voice of God. I think you can't be just need-driven or you'll, you'll burn out, you'll dry. I know all those things. But Philip Owen, you know, Insight got the green light with the, with the Supreme Court this week. A 9 nothing vote. You know where it all started? It started with a conservative Christian mayor who was tough on crime and war on drugs and let's get the drug problem out of the city and throw them all in jail. And halfway into his term, he started reaching out to a bunch of drug addicts, having them in his home or in, in, in seminars, and he said, tell me your stories. And as these guys began to tell their stories, these guys and gals, that man's heart was broken. That man's heart was softened. And he lost his job over it. NPA kicked him out. You know what NPA stands for? Nonpartisan Association. Isn't that a funny name for a political party? Isn't that a joke? Kicked him out. Because they're very conservative in their economics and obviously war on drugs and all that stuff. He lost his job over it. But today, the, uh, the people in the downtown east side are very grateful for Philip Owen. So what was the difference? Why did the Samaritan stop? The Samaritan stopped. It says, it says when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. What was the difference? Why did he feel compassion? Compassion means to suffer with, to say, listen, that's not us and them. That's us. That's not them over there and me here. It's, it's us. This is... He suffered with, he entered into that man's pain. He, he realized that he had a family, he had a background, he had a story. And he entered into that man's life. But what happened? Why? And scripture doesn't tell us. But I think that I would like to propose that the Samaritan man himself knew mercy. That he needed mercy. And when you live in the continual realization that you need mercy, you show mercy. And so... He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took, his, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, which is two days' wages, and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you have. And then Jesus asked the question, this is the jab, this is the jar that he gives these, this, this uh, lawyer says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. See how Jesus turns it. He said, who's my neighbor? Who's the one that's to receive passive, be the passive recipient of love? Jesus turns that around and says, who was being the neighbor? And it was that hated Samaritan. It was that one that everybody said, that's not my neighbor. He was the neighbor. So Jesus twists it. So how can we twist it for us? Because we already know the story. Here's the surprise ending for us. What happens is that you find out that the perpetrator of the man who's laying on the ground is you. You supported. There's some... Some uh, security guys that came through your town and said, we've got a lot of crime out there and we're going to help the economy. And, you know, if you can, we're going to just do some fundraising. You can support our cause and we'll, we'll make sure the vermin are taken care of. We'll clean up the streets. Right? And you find out that it's your support. It's your investment. It's kind of like the guy that's working for a chemical fa factory. 
And he's a Christian guy, has his devotions every morning, goes to work at the chemical factory, and then he finds out that his government is using those chemicals to destroy innocent civilians in another part of the world. It happens. Gets even trickier if it's a weapons factory. Huh? What if the system that you and I buy into is oppressing other people, is causing them to suffer? Right? What if the surprise ending is this? What if the guy that, that you were uh, culpable in, in the injury, what if he has discovered a cure for a terminal illness that you are suffering with? What if native culture is the key to restoring a culture of individualism and materialism? And I don't have rose-colored glasses about native culture, nor does Steve or anybody else. So everybody knows every culture's fallen. They had treachery and bloodshed and all of that too. But they had in the heart, in the redeemed native culture, that love of community, that love of generosity, that love of hospitality. And every time I go to lower post, something in me is healed. And I can't describe it. It's just this indescribable healing that occurs deep in my heart. Like a piece is put back in my life. As Lila Watson said, if you're coming to help us, you're wasting your time. But if you believe that your healing is bound up with ours, come and let us walk together. No one is truly free when other people are oppressed. Just where our healing is bound together. Our healing is mutual. So, moving into communion. Where do we go from here? Ongoing confession and repentance. We did it 16 years ago in Lower Post when we built that playground at the site of the residential school, but it doesn't stop. I love David Maines, founder of Huntley Street. He says, every time I see a First Nations person, I just want to put my arms around them and weep and say, I'm so sorry. I know exactly what he's talking about. And you just feel that as a Christian, as a white male Christian, you just feel like repentance is going to go for a long time. But but sorry is not enough. There's more needed. Work towards healing and reconciliation. There's a process going across Canada right now that was initiated when Stephen Harper issued his apology on behalf of Canadian government called the Truth and Reconciliation Process. Steve's involved in that. He mentioned it. But what it is, is it's giving an opportunity for people to hear the story. Listen to the story. Take Francis's story. You heard Steve's story today. Read the stories. Those stories need to be heard for our healing. They're hard to hear, I know. But that's the, the, the wine part. Remember the The Good Samaritan put oil and wine in. The oil feels good. The wine stings. But you know what? It gets rid of infection. Thirdly, let's work towards historic agreements in in our land. Uh, Linda Prince, uh, who was with us at Lower Post um, uh, this last summer, talks about a vision she had of First Nations people. Um with a membrane over their ear. They couldn't hear. Steve said, very few First Nations will believe the gospel. And she said she saw this Bible covered with a pile of papers. And she said, Lord, what does the papers represent? She said, broken treaties. 
The Lord said, these are broken treaties. And so the, the white man came and said, the great white father is going to take care of you and bless you. And he made these treaties. And then they broke them. And then they came with the Bible and said, here's your heavenly father. He's going to bless you. And they went, wait a minute. These are the same people that are telling us about the great white father. How can we believe about the heavenly father? And so there's this distrust that can only be healed by justice. It can only be healed as we work towards seeing justice in this land. And finally, it's a partnership of mutual respect. It's not us helping them. We need them more than they need us. That's a fact. So as we move into communion, C.S. Lewis uh, I'm in a seminar right now, and he wrote something I read the other day that just hit me so hard when he was talking about the glory in every human being. And I want us to meditate on this as we break bread today. He said that the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it. Can I read that again? That's just... The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory. Okay, the person sitting next to you should be laid on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it. And the backs of the proud will be broken. The dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature you would be strongly tempted to worship. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. So, as we contemplate the bread, Jesus said, this is my body. And then Paul talks about how that it represents not only, when we talk about the body, it doesn't just mean the physical body of Christ. It also means the spiritual body of Christ. That's us. This represents us. Canada will never be whole until First Nations people have an equal voice within the church. And that's our vision. That's our call as a church. It's in our genetic code. We can never get away from it. We try sometimes. We don't try, but we, we sometimes through just Time goes on, but God keeps bringing it back, reminding us of it. And uh, so I'm just going to ask the servers to come and uh, prepare themselves to serve communion today. And uh, I'd like us all just to reflect on the broken body of Christ and, and just that broken part, that First Nations part that has been so broken and, and that gift that we need out of that brokenness. And I want us to just, just bow our heads and, and uh, just wait just for a moment. Just contemplate the broken body of Christ. The pain and the grief that this legacy has caused God's heart. Father, 
I've shared really a summary of our story as a church. It's not just my story. It's our story. It's a journey that you privilege us to walk together with our First Nations people, these wonderful friends of ours. They're not a project. They're not a statistic. They're not a ministry or a goal. They're our friends. That is the essence and the core of what this has been. It's been a friendship. And they've taught us about friendship. Even in their brokenness, they've taught us about hospitality. Even in their pain and in their poverty, they've taught us about generosity. They've taught us about stewardship. Even as their communities have been devastated, poisoned by gas and oil, mining, and they've lost their livelihoods through dams and fishing, through, through dams and, and, uh, and through forestry. They've lost their ability to trap and to fish and to hunt. And yet they've shown incredible heart for environmental awareness and stewardship in a responsible way. Lord, would you help us to learn together, to grow together, to heal together, that, that our lives are in, interwoven and interconnected. Would you teach us your ways in this, Lord? And as we grieve the past, Lord, we know that you're not asking us to stay there, but you're asking us to move forward, to build, to be a neighbor to be neighbors. Would you just show the, those places of racism that still lie unchallenged and unchecked in our hearts? Racial superiority. Lord, would you convict us? Would you cleanse us? Would you call us to be a people of justice? Jesus, I'm just going to invite, uh, invite you to come and receive communion. And if you would like further prayer, I uh, encourage you to turn to one another or just receive prayer at the front. Um, I don't know, Steve. I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I feel like it would be good for you, if you're, if you're open to it, to just come and receive communion. And then uh, if people would want you to pray for them, with a, just pray a blessing just feel like a First Nations blessing over us. Um, I would, I just feel like we need that. We need, you've forgiven me many times in my confession as I've, art, as I've, I've articulated our sin against your people. And I can't tell you how much your grace and your forgiveness and your friendship has meant to me, how much it's healed me. And uh, I would just love it if some of these folks could experience the same. That's okay. Um, thank you for just showing us the heart of God and his grace to us. And uh, So is that all right? If, yeah, after you've had communion. So if you want Steve to just pray a blessing over you, First Nations blessing, and uh, other First Nations people here, we honor you and bless you, and you're welcome to come up and be a part of that as well. We just say that we love you and we need you. And we can't move forward in this land 
without you. So, uh, Lord, we bless this body. We bless this blood. We thank you for your presence in it. May your grace and peace be with us now as we minister to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Mark, if you can just put on a little that, that CD again, that Justice CD, that would be great. And God bless you as you interact with each other around around.